Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Most of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I don't want you to raise your hands because this may be embarrassing, but I do want to ask a question. Have you ever made a decision that you regretted? You spent a lot of time weighing the options. You spent a lot of time doing the pros and cons, and you made a list, and you, you prayed about it, and you sought counsel, and you finally made that decision. And right after you made it, you immediately wondered, what have I done? Have I made the right decision? You regret it, and you wish you could go back in time and make the right decision. In my younger years, before we moved to Colorado, when we were growing up in Texas, I had always wanted to go to Baylor University. Um, Growing up as a Baptist in Texas is kind of where you just went to, was, was Baylor University. Well, I had two choices. I was choosing between Baylor and Oklahoma Baptist University, and I had visited both campuses, and I kind of knew in my heart of hearts I was supposed to go to Oklahoma Baptist University because it was just a better fit, but in my pride, I felt like I needed to go to Baylor, and so I spent my first semester at Baylor, and it cost my parents an arm and a leg, and I absolutely hated it. It was the worst experience of my entire life, my, my freshman year in college. And, and I wondered every day, going to bed at night in my dorm, why, why did I do this? Did I make the right decision? I have made a terrible decision. But thankfully, the Lord worked, and I was able to come back home and go to school in Colorado. But we've had those, those times in your life where you make a decision, and you wonder, is it worth it? Did I make the right decision? Well, last week we saw the rich young ruler come to Jesus, and Jesus crushes him with the law. Jesus gives him the Ten Commandments, and and Jesus gives him the Ten Commandments to show the rich young ruler that he can't live up to that standard. And so instead of being broken by the law, instead of repenting and, and seeing his need for Jesus, the rich young ruler walks away sad because he had many riches. And then Jesus gives the gospel He says, it's impossible to save yourselves. It's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. And so God must do a supernatural work of grace to reach down and change your heart and and cause you to be born again and to do this supernatural work of grace in your life. And I kind of left you a little hanging last week because you probably wondered, how come Pastor Sean didn't finish the rest of the passage that he read last week? Well, we're going to pick up kind of at the end of that, and then move into what Jesus says next. So we're going to pick up at verse 28, right after Jesus addresses the rich young ruler, and then he addresses his disciples, and then Peter speaks up. So let's start in verse 28, chapter 18. Peter said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and 
in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So Peter's concerned that maybe Jesus didn't understand what the disciples had given up to follow him. Peter wanted to make sure Jesus knew that they had given up everything. And so Peter reminds Jesus there in verse 28, See, we've left our homes and we followed you, Jesus. We've left everything to follow you. And so Peter basically puts his sacrifice up as a qualification to somehow earn God's grace. Peter thought perhaps if he left everything, this would merit God's love, God's grace, God's salvation. It would put him in God's great good, good graces. And so we need to be very careful here because what Peter's actually doing here is he's, he's actually trying to put forth salvation by works. Look at all that I've done, Jesus. Look at what all we've done. We've, we've left everything for you. We've sacrificed. We've done all these things. That's not salvation by grace. That's salvation by your accomplishments. Remember, salvation is simply trusting in what Jesus has done for you in the cross and in his resurrection. Does Jesus somehow teach us here that we can merit salvation by our sacrifice? No, it's impossible. You can't repent enough. You can't sacrifice enough. You can't give up enough in order to be saved. Salvation is by grace alone. And so how does Jesus answer Peter's question? We've given up everything. Verse 29, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What Jesus does is gives Peter the gospel of grace. And we're going to see that, unpack that this morning, but I want you to notice in verse 30, it's the word receive. Who will not receive many times more in this lifetime. I've said this many times before. Salvation is not an achieving. Salvation is a receiving. It's not something you can achieve in your own works and even in your own sacrifice or doing enough. It's a receiving of what Christ alone has done for you. It's not an achieving. It is a receiving. And so we're not saved by what we achieve, but we're saved by receiving the free gift of grace. But let me ask you a very important question. Maybe it's a question you've asked yourself before. Is it truly worth it to repent and believe in Jesus? Is it worth it? 
Is it, wor- is it really worth it to follow Christ? Is it worth it to follow Christ when you're made fun of at school for being a Christian? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when you see everybody around you at your workplace cheating and getting to the top at all costs? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when you have to break off a relationship because you know you're unequally yoked and it's not God's will for you to be with that person? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when all your friends are having fun and they're doing whatever they want and here you are struggling to follow Christ and to live a holy life? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Oftentimes we ask the wrong question. We often couch the gospel in terms of what I must give up instead of asking the question, what do I gain? What do I get? Yes, you repent. You turn from a life of sin and you trust in Christ alone. But when you trust Christ for salvation, what do you receive? Well, yes, you do receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And the question we've got to ask today is, is it worth it? Is it really worth it to repent and believe in Christ alone? So I want to explore this passage of Scripture and look at it from three aspects, three truths that emerge from this passage of Scripture. And at first, this first one may not jump off the page at you, but I want to try to unpack it for you. So the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture is we do see a beautiful promise. A beautiful promise to all believers in Christ. We see this in verses 29 through 30. A beautiful promise. Now, Jesus gives us a double blessing. Because at the end of verse 30, he says, Who will not receive many times more in this time, in this age, in this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there are blessings that we receive now for being a Christian and into eternity. And Jesus says, how much more? Who will receive many times more? Well, what's he talking about here? What did you have to give up? Well, notice the things that Jesus lists here. If you've left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom, you'll receive many times more. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? What's he saying you're going to receive many times more the things you've given up? Well, the things he lists are things that are very important to you, like your home, your children, your family. What Jesus is saying here is this. When you trust in Christ, what you receive is a brand new family. You're adopted into the family of God, and now you have new brothers and new sisters and new parents And you're now a new family. You're part of a church family. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but one of the blessings that you receive when you become a Christian is you receive the beauty of what it means to be part of a church family. To have brothers and sisters in Christ who love you. 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul says, We are God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building." You're God's, we're God's field where he's doing a work of agriculture, of growing. We're God's building. He's building us up. We're the family of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14 says, For just as the body is one, one body, many members, 
All the members of the body, though many, many are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We've been baptized into Christ, into the body, where we're many together. And what does that mean? If you read further down in that passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 through 27, that there be may, may, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What Paul's saying here is that as the body of Christ, we are interconnected into this dynamic relationship to where if one person suffers, we should all suffer with that person. If one person rejoices, we should all rejoice with that person. Now what does that mean for the life of the church? That means we need to know each other's needs. That means we need to know each other's deep problems and issues and, dare I say, baggage. You should not be afraid to come into Emmanuel Baptist Church and bring your sin and bring your problems with you because you have a church family that's going to walk alongside you and help you in your journey with Christ. That's what a church family is all about. It's walking alongside one another and rejoicing and suffering and helping and encouraging and being a family. Galatians 6.10 So then we have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to do good to everybody. We're to do good to our neighbor, but especially to those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ to the household of faith, to serve one another, to love one another, to pray for one another. Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the household of God, the family of God. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is building His house. God is building His family. And we're all individually members of that family, and God's building us together, and God's building us up, and God's growing us together to be the family that He's called us to be, to love one another, to serve one another. And then 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, If I delay, speaking to Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul says the church is the household of God. So we have this joy. So, so, So what you give up, In coming to Christ, Jesus says, as you get a brand new family with new brothers and new sisters, and this is a joyous thing to be part of the family of God. Now, here's the interesting thing. I would venture to guess that some of you in this room may be closer to your church family than to your actual physical family, especially if your family lives far away. 
You know, a lot of people have grown up in Sterling and you have roots here and you have family and you, you pretty much grown up here your whole life. But we've had a lot of people that have moved in from outside the area and they've told me over the years that this church family has become so important to them when they've moved into town because they don't have their immediate family close by. And so we are a family. But Jesus promises some wonderful blessings. He says, how much more, verse 30, you will not receive who will not receive many times more in this time. What do, we, what do we receive in this time that God has for us that we don't have to wait till we get to heaven? Well, right now we can have peace. Philippians 4, 6-7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You can have the peace that passes understanding. We can have joy. First Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with a inexpressible joy and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. While we're waiting for Jesus to come back, we have this inexpressible joy, a joy we can't put into words. And then we have love. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So, so love deep in our hearts. And then 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Okay, so... Think about peace in your life. Think about joy in your life. Think about love in your life. Think about these things in your life. They come to you through the Holy Spirit, but how do they most often come to you? Through other believers. God ministers joy and peace and love and and all these things to your hearts through other believers who serve you, who love you, who encourage you. So when you think about, what do I have to get up, give up to be a Christian? We always think, I have to give all these things up to be a Christian. I have to give up all this fun. I have to give up pleasure. I have to give up this relationship. I have to give up sex. I have to give up adventure. I have to give up this. All these things I've got to give up. And we can think about all the negative things that we have to give up. And we don't stop and think about, well, what do you get? And Jesus says, you will get many times more in this age what you've given up. You'll get a new family. You'll get loving relationships. You'll get love, peace, joy. You'll get the the blessings of God to you. And not only that, but notice what what Jesus says to Peter there in verse 30. Who will not receive many times more in this time. So we receive the joy of, of having blessings in this time. But then he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. So we also have to look forward to the joy of eternal life. And what is eternal life? Well, obviously eternal life is living forever in heaven, but most importantly, how does Jesus define eternal life? John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Okay, Jesus, what is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you know Jesus? He's the one that will give you eternal life. So these two blessings, the joy of having a brand new church family and eternal life, have you ever stopped and just 
praise the Lord and thank the Lord for your church family? Or you just kind of take for granted, yeah, I, I come here every Sunday, I sit here, I listen to Pastor Sean, I sing some music, and then I leave. Or do you take the time to invest in other people's lives and allow others to invest in you to where you can have that relationship and those friendships where they can be a blessing to you? Do you see how much God has blessed you as his child? So that's the first thing we've seen here is this beautiful blessing that Jesus says, hey, don't worry about all the things you're going to give up to become a Christian. Think about what you get. You're going to receive a brand new family. You've left houses and wives and brothers and parents and children, but you'll receive many times more than that in this age. And also in the age to come, you'll receive eternal life. Okay, the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture, the first was a beautiful promise. The second thing we see is a brutal prediction, a brutal prediction of the death of Christ. In verse 31, taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is the third and final time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus predicts that he's going to go to Jerusalem and what's going to happen to him. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Luke chapter 9, verse 44, and Luke chapter 17, verse 25, Jesus said he's going to be betrayed. And then he says here in verse 31, these things that are written will be accomplished. They will be accomplished. That word accomplished is very close to what Jesus cried out on the cross when he cried out, it is finished. These things written about Jesus in the Old Testament will sovereignly come to pass because God's timetable has determined that it will come to pass. All these things written about Jesus, written about him by the prophets, all the things that were written about Jesus in the Old Testament. What does Jesus say about the Old Testament? He's talking to the Pharisees in John 5, 39-40. He says, you search the scriptures. He's talking to the religious leaders. You search the scriptures. And, and at that time, it was the Old Testament. You're looking at the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they, the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is saying is that all the Old Testament is pointing to this one moment in time where he's going to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. And Jesus gives some kind of brutal descriptions here. And most of these come from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. What does he say? Verse 32, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is talking about Pilate, Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers. Now, the Jewish leaders They could not execute Jesus by the death penalty because they did not have that authority. They had to have that mock trial, and they had to deliver Jesus over to the Roman authorities who could actually execute the death penalty crucifixion. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is from Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? What else will happen to Jesus He'll be mocked. He'll be made fun of. Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He will be 
shamefully treated. Shamefully treated. Again, Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. That's, that's a metaphor for Gentiles, the Roman soldiers. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now remember, this is Old Testament. It's a prophecy about what Jesus is going to go through. What else does Jesus say? He'll be spat upon. He'll spit in Jesus' face. And then verse 33, after flogging him. You know what that flogging entailed? It was the cat of nine tails. Crushed bone, crushed glass, crushed metal, ripping into Jesus' skin. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Again, a prophecy about Jesus being spat upon, being flogged. And then Jesus says, he, they will kill him on a cross. Jesus will die on the cross. What does Isaiah 53-5 say? Again, this is Old Testament prophecy written 700 years before this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus predicts that he will die on the cruel, brutal cross at the hands of sinful men, bearing God's wrath, taking our sin, taking our shame, dying in our place. And why did Jesus do this? Because of his great love for us. John the Baptist saw Jesus one day in John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, the Old Testament imagery of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus being the Lamb of God. And then Paul says in Romans 5, 8 through 9, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What did we just sing earlier? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood, for taking God's wrath, for dying in our place. And then what does Jesus say finally will happen? He will rise on the third day. On the third day, he will rise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Jesus gives graphic detail here to the disciples of what is going to happen when they go to Jerusalem. Delivered over, spat upon, flogged, mocked, killed. Third day, rise again. So let me ask you the question again. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And you have to say absolutely. 
Because look what he accomplished for you. He died in your place on that brutal cross. My favorite passage of scripture, and and to this day I don't understand it, so don't ask me to explain it. It's my favorite scripture. I can't explain it. I'll do my best. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus. Some translations say fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. And here's the part I don't understand. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't understand that. What in the world does it mean that there was joy awaiting Jesus going to the cross? The joy that was set before him. Now we could probably spend a month of Sundays unpacking this one passage of scripture, but let me just give you two reasons why I think Jesus had joy going to the cross. Number one, I think because he was doing the will of his father. And Jesus always does what pleases his father, so it brought him great joy to go to the cross and to accomplish the mission for which he was sent. That's first and foremost, that Jesus did the Father's will. But have you ever thought about this? It brought great joy to Jesus to go to the cross because in that, he was getting you and me. He was paying for you and me. He was dying for you and me. And he knew that the cross would be the only way for our salvation. And it brought him great joy. So it's worth it to follow Jesus. And we should always boast in the cross. Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. So two things we've seen so far this morning, a beautiful promise. You get a brand new family, but a brutal prediction, the cross. But then there's a third thing we see here, and it's in verse 34. We see a baffling predicament, a baffling predicament about the cross of Christ. Okay, look at verse 34. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The disciples were clueless. What are you talking about, Jesus? What do you, we don't track with you. They could not grasp that the Messiah would suffer on a brutal cross. Because here's the the deal. These Jewish men had grown up their whole life in the synagogue hearing about a coming Messiah. And in their mind, the Messiah would come in, be a man of political power, ride in on a white horse, and kick the Roman Empire out, and set up Jerusalem as the capital, and it would be a man of political power. He would reign as king. No Messiah in their mind would be flogged and killed and executed by the Romans and die on a bloody cross. They could not understand that. It was bewildering, puzzling, and offensive to these men. But then, After the cross and after the empty tomb, they understood. Once they saw the empty tomb, the puzzlement went away. They they were no longer baffled, but they had to wait until that time. And so for them, before the cross, it was puzzling. It was baffling. But yet, after the cross, the cross is still baffling and puzzling to many. It's still offensive to many today. There are many non-believers who do not understand the cross. 
And that doesn't concern me as much because they're non-believers. What concerns me is how many professing Christians we are seeing be embarrassed of the cross. Don't talk about the blood. Don't talk about God's wrath. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about what Jesus did there. Let's not go there. Let me just say something. If you don't go there, there's no hope for any of us. Because Jesus did die on a cruel cross. And it's offensively moronic to the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly. That Greek word means moronic. It's moronic. It's foolish. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jesus dying on the cross is moronic. It's outlandish. It's foolish to those of the world who have no clue what's going on. They don't understand it. Now, let me ask you the question. Why is the cross so moronically offensive? Why is the cross offensive? What does the cross say? The cross says you and I are wretched sinners that cannot save ourselves and we need a Savior to die in our place and to rise again because there's no hope for us. It shatters all pride and lays us dead in our tracks in need of a Savior. That's why it's offensive. John Stott said this, Nothing in history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we visited a place called Calvary. It is there, at the foot of the cross, that we shrink to our true size. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How many millions of people don't understand or value the old rugged cross? Is it worth it to trust in Jesus? Absolutely. Why? Because you receive a new family. You receive many more times the things that you gave up in this age. And in the age to come, you receive eternal life. You receive a crucified Savior that died in your place. You receive a resurrected Savior that rose again on the third day and gives us eternal life. And how often do we take these things for granted? It's merely a given we don't think much about. How often is the cross and the resurrection and the gospel maligned and made fun of in our culture. Never forget that the cross and the resurrection never happened by accident. God sovereignly planned this from eternity past. It was God's sovereign plan from eternity past to send Jesus. Jesus voluntarily agreed to come to earth and die, and the Holy Spirit agreed in eternity past to raise Jesus from the dead, and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit worked in concert to bring about your salvation down to the very last detail. Now think about it this way. Is it worth it to trust in Jesus? What we've been talking about this morning are all the blessings you get from Jesus. You get a new family. You get joy. You get peace. You get love. You get eternal life. But let me just put it all into perspective for a moment. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Yes. Why? What's the most important thing? Here it is. You get Jesus. That's the most important thing. 
You get him. And Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What do you give up? Well, you give up a lot, but what do you get? You get Jesus. I've given you this quote from John Piper before in his book, God is the Gospel. He starts his book out with this. He says, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? How do you answer that question? It's worth repenting and giving up all because you get Jesus. You get Jesus as your joy, Jesus as your treasure, Jesus as your peace, Jesus as your satisfaction, Jesus as your very life. So instead of worrying about what you have to give up to get to become a Christian, Yes, you need to repent and give up your sin. But what do you get? You get a new family. You get joy. You get peace. You get forgiveness. But ultimately, you get Jesus. And he alone is worth it. And so may we all answer today the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? May we all answer the question today with a hearty amen. It is worth it. It is worth it. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. We come before you this morning and we are so thankful that you did get flogged and beaten and mistreated and spat upon and a crown of thorns on your head and nails through your hands and your feet that you died at the hands of sinful men on a brutal cross. It's offensive to some. It's foolish to others. But to those of us who are being saved, it's beautiful and glorious, and it's our only hope. So Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. And Jesus, thank you for rising again, victorious over death, hell, and the devil that we might have eternal life. Help us to know and realize and and be thankful for all the many more things you've given us in this age. Help us to be thankful for our church family, thankful for the blessings, thankful for the joy, the love, and the hope, and the peace that you give us, especially through other believers, ministering those to us. Help us to thank you always for being our Savior. And most of all, Jesus, thank you that we get you. That we would consider everything a loss compared to gaining, knowing, being with you. So Jesus, we want to stop right now and just pause and say we love you. Maybe we haven't even had a chance to do that this morning, just to stop and say, Jesus, we love you. We thank you. 
You're our awesome Savior. Would we leave this place thankful? Would we leave this place renewed? Would we leave this place joyful because we have seen, we've beheld our God this morning. We've seen the crucified and risen Savior. And we've seen the new family He's placed us in, the family of God. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. May we leave this place with joy in our hearts because you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, our glorious Savior. It's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.